It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio. Flavored with a dash of humor. Welcome to intelligent, irreverent talk about plants and the planet they grow on. Your questions, comments, and participation are always welcome on Facebook and Instagram at The Mike Novak Show and at Mike Now on Twitter. Good planets hard to find. Temperate zones and tropic climes. And true currents and thriving seas. Wind blowing through breathing trees. Strong ozone and safe sunshine. Well, good planets are hard to find. Good planets are in the main. Brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Jet streams, perfect air. And here they are, Peggy Malecki and Mike Nova. Good planets are in the Right. was going to try to fade out when you were actually looking at the camera but uh, uh you're busy <laughs> sorry i was i was finally getting into restream so i was like in fact i'm glad you said that because i can say my hello to good morning y'all uh to the folks on uh and then of course the first comment from mr skeet who says missed both of you last week so uh we missed you too skeet yep uh, and here we are back again. And I, I'll tell you, as I said in uh, the Facebook post, we are um, uh, not tanned, uh, rested, and ready. No, we're kind of pasty, rested, and ready maybe because it's still spring and there hasn't been a lot of sun. But it was a good day yesterday. Have to okay. tell you that. That was. Uh, that was a nice surprise. 80. Hope you, hope you enjoyed spring for a day. Yeah, that's what it was. Um, and, and everything really? popped. Everything in my yard popped all at once. It was just. Mm-hmm. And it's going to pop some more today because we're in 70s, although there's rain. We've been looking at the radar, but that's okay. Yeah, um, it was misty outside this morning. Um, uh, not here, but uh, you, you're closer to the lake, so. Yeah, it was misty. I could see little splashes in the bird bath of, of rain and stepped outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just kind of that rain, just kind of misty. But I'm I'm happy to be back. Um, it, actually, I was really happy um, uh, to take a week off. <laughs> yeah, Did you get I, any sleep? I can't. Yeah, I can't tell you what it was like to have a Saturday. Actually, a Friday and a Saturday and a Sunday where I wasn't stressed at all and just sort of sitting around doing stuff and nothing in particular. And we went out for a walk to the Labaw Woods last Sunday in Chicago and ran into Jeff Scretney. We got Scretneyed. Scretneyed. Oh, oh, Kathleen, if you're watching this, send me the photo. I want, I want to post the photo sometime during the show of uh, me and Jeff. Um, in uh, Labaw Woods because uh, he's got his... He is the main steward of Labaw Woods, which is part of the Cook County Forest Preserve District in Chicago. Right. Right and, along the North Branch. And we were uh, talking about, we saw um, 
uh, a hawk's nest up there. I think it was a Cooper's hawk's nest, something. And uh, and he was and he was talking about the plantings they're doing there now. Um, they're doing a lot of work um, uh, making the area better, getting rid of the invasives, and uh, it's pretty cool. Um, so I hope uh, Kathleen sends that to me because then I can post the uh, the photo maybe when you and I talk at ten o'clock um, about our environmental stories. Uh, and uh, we got a and, whole bunch of photos. All sorts of- uh, oh yeah, I've got photos of, of our yards. Uh, Peggy and I were exchanging photos yesterday, um, and we're going to show some of them during our conversation with the marvelous Melinda Myers, uh, who is uh, our yeah, guest today. And, and Melinda would would have gotten a kick out of it yesterday, and just share before we bring her in. So you and I are on the phone Saturday. Both of us walking around in our yards going, oh, look at this picture. Ooh, yeah, and okay. Like texting and texting, you know, sent to sending a photo, texting it, sending it off right away. Did you get that one? Oh, yeah, I got that. Looks like, oh, I've got one here. Oh, okay. Uh, that, that, and that was the that was show fun. prep. That was our show prep <laughs> for today. Um, so uh, Alexandra says, uh, yesterday we got to garden. Today we get to listen to Mike and Peggy. So I count that equal. Wow. Okay. Well, thanks, man. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that. That's cool. All oh, right. Are, what are you baking this morning, Zan, though? Yeah, that's the important so thing. baking something during the show. Yep, that's, uh, that's the ritual. Uh, and so, uh, you know what, let's just, let's just get there because um, there's no point us blah blah I, I will say, before we get to Melinda, that uh, meteorologist Rick DeMaio is back uh, today with us. Yes, and uh, will we'll tell us about, uh, you know, spring, which is... One day cold, one day warm, one day wet, one day windy. Um, it's spring. This, this is what happens. In uh, Chicago. In, well, you know, in a lot of, you know, Chicago. And I, I will bring uh, Melinda in for this conversation because, whoa, not that. Oh, no, no. I did, no, that's not Melinda. I did that last week, last time, too. I, I meant that's to do. There we go. <laughs> Yikes. Um, no, Melinda, you, you actually refer to. Midwest weather. Well, yeah, the idea that if it, if if uh, in your in your product placement. Oh, right, product you. placement. Here we go. My product placement. Thank you, guys. Here we so go. I should hold mine up too. Just yeah. All right, everybody, get let's the get there. <laughs> it's a three shot. This, uh, and this right. is the brand new, brand new, just off the presses. Midwest Gardener's <laughs> Handbook. For those of you listening on the podcast, we are holding up copies of the Midwest Gardener's <laughs> Handbook. You should get yourself a copy if you're a gardener in the Midwest. Um, and I will say, and I hope this is not an insult, especially if you're a new gardener, because um, you lay it out in a way that uh, new gardeners will really understand. Um, and it's, it's, you need to jump into, if, if you've decided this is what I want to do and I want to grow stuff, you need to find a book that is approachable that that doesn't get you in over your head from the get-go uh, that sort of guides you but gives you good information um, and has uh, some of the basics in there a, a, a list of plants that uh, is not overwhelming um, and, and great photos and terrific photos just wonderful photos and unlike some of the book yes oh, see thanks. stuff like that wait I know wait there, 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 there's some others here too well here we go. And you took See? a lot of them, Melinda. 
a lot a lot of them are mine and a lot are from people who are really good or from other yards that have great examples um, yeah and i'm not offended i've always my whole career tried to be um understandable approachable I, this and this is my favorite time of year. My garden looks great. Well, though I'm still cleaning up winter interest right now in my yard, but um, you know the weeds aren't too bad yet, and the bulbs are up, and things <laughs> are looking good, right? Right. But I really try to I try to be answer those questions that you don't see in any other books. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think we're all there's great information across the country, but a lot of it's not relevant to the Midwest. So this is our opportunity to really address the craziness. You know, every place has crazy weather, but ours is, yeah. you know, think about this winter. We'd have really warm, really cold, really warm, really cold. I'm seeing frost heaving out in my garden where that shifting oh, yeah. soil pushed plants and bulbs right out, tuck them back in. So things like that that we experience here. And, you know, I'm from Wisconsin, so I made sure I took care of us northern Midwest folks, too. <laughs> well, that, that I was just wondering about it. I mean, we're, we're a little too far south for you to, to, to care about here. <laughs> <laughs> in, in Chicago, um, but um, no, it's 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 a wonderful book, and and I I well, advise anybody to, uh, to to pick it up, and it's been updated, it's been revised, right. and that's that's the whole point of this. Um, and we were talking about that the other day in the preview segment we did uh, and posted a few days ago, um, and uh, among the things that you added to the book is a section on jumping worms. I, we'll get to that in a second. Okay. Uh, but you also said you had to take uh, some plants out. Um, I, I go, did. And I went through the list after you asked me which ones, because it was a year ago when I wrote, you know, as a whole right. review process. So some things that were not, things that are invasive for sure, or potentially invasive. So... Things like dead nettle, spotted dead nettle is showing up in woods and around the area. Now, obviously, you have to figure out, is this going to be an issue where you garden? But I wanted to make people where I love dead nettle, and it's a beautiful plant. Maybe in a pot makes more sense than in a garden next to a woodland where it could escape and take over. Squills, one of my favorites. I always recommended putting them in the lawn. <laughs> They're escaping into the woods. And if you put squills in a garden, you know, they're really almost impossible to control. They're everywhere. And so they're everywhere and they're taking over and they're moving in. I have to, I went through after we chatted because um, something we don't really grow is fire thorn, but many parts a little more south and I maybe in Chicago even, um, they're finding it's escaping as well. And miscanthus, um, which is the uh, silver banner, not silver banner, but the other miscanthus sinensis, um, is escaping too. Now they found the variegated varieties tend to recede less readily, but you've probably seen them along the freeway. And so, no, I haven't, but that's, help. that's terrifying actually. And folks, it is. Uh, and if you don't know what miscanthus is, it's an ornamental grass. All right. And you, you see Sorry. it. No, it's okay. Uh, that's my job. Your, your job is to, to be the horticulturist. <laughs> my job you is to translate. Right. <laughs> And uh, you uh, you see uh, ornamental grasses all the time, and it's probably better if you get yourself um, a native or or at least a native R, uh, and we can talk about that a little bit too because we. Right. Well, but you still have to be careful which one, like a palm sedge or something that marches across the. Yard. Oh, I, exactly, exactly. And I I used it in a place where it was very appropriate. We had it in our rain garden at Energy Park at State Fair. And it took over, like you said, Peggy, and we dug it up. People took trunk 
you know, our volunteers took trunk pulls home. I took a bunch, set it, in a, I didn't even plant it. I just set it on the ground, ignored it for a year, then divide, it was still alive. So it tells you how tough that plant is. So you're right. Um, you know, and I planted three purple coneflowers in my city lot. What a fool I was. And that's all I had three years later. So, because it recedes, so you can well, still yeah. have it, but you need to yeah. manage it. And so yeah. um, you're absolutely right. You know, selecting the right plant, native or not, in base of aggressive, what's your management strategy? You know, are you gonna manage that plant? Because Evelyn Howe, who's a landscape architect, I don't know if she's still at UW, uh, University of Wisconsin, said, we're taking a thousand acre ecosystem, a prairie, and trying to put it on a quarter acre lot and expecting it to act the same. And she wasn't saying don't do it. Right. So she said she wasn't saying don't do it because that's what she was promoting. But she was just saying, you can't just plant it, walk away and think you're going to have a pure prairie. You might have all coneflower or all rubecchia unless you do a little intervention. So I, I thought that was a great way of explaining that, that we take these ecosystems and put them in our yard and expect them to act the same. That's a really, really good point. But uh if I had to guess, I would say most people are not doing in um, a prairie, uh, don't have acres and acres. We're, we're, we're talking about millions of people, and I just read an article just the other day that said, in the United States, we've now topped a million gardeners, and that is a result of the last couple of years of pandemic uh, and other factors, but mainly the pandemic where people said, okay. One million? Uh, I'm I, sorry, I, one, I one, eight, I was, uh, 100 million, oh, I'm I sorry. Just, I was going to say, I think there are 18.3 million new, new gardeners. New, new garden. I'm sorry, 100 right. million gardeners is what okay, I meant to thank say. thank you, Peggy. I was like, oh, I think I've been giving out bad information. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> 100 million gardeners and... 100 million. <laughs> one, 100 million gardeners. Um, and uh, we're not putting prairies in we we are in a limited space you look at my own backyard and you're right that's a really good point which is you're throwing in often random groups of plants uh no idea how they're going to interact together this is why roy diblick talks about plants that get along that can coexist um and you and and if you haven't done this before, you don't know what those plants are. You could read books till till the cows come home and still probably not understand that until you do it, until you see them interact together. And, and it might right. work and, in a book and not in your yard. Right, because your soil's different, the time you have to invest is different. I just talked to lots of people, a lot of new gardeners who want to go very all native plants. And whether you call it a prairie or not, I think the point is, I think there's an assumption that because it's native, there's going to be no problem. And yeah, they provide some good things. You know, they support the insects, they support the birds, they do all those good things, but they may require management just like a garden, especially if you're in the city, even if you're in the country, you know, thistles and weeds and things. And I, I went through the first prairie movement in my career back in the early 80s. And I had people calling me at extension saying, well, I was told to let my yard go and I'd have a prairie. Well, no, you don't, you have weeds. You know, a bluegrass lawn doesn't turn into a prairie without intervention. And so I wanna make sure that we're helping people, whether it's rain gardens or native plantings or just a vegetable garden, that we help them do it so they get the results they want 
um, it's work, but we could do things that are going to be less work, right? I mean, we've all we've all we've all put the wrong plant in the wrong place and went, well, that was really dumb. Yeah, and, uh, you know, you know, and I probably will continue to do it. But and sometimes we'll put the wrong the plants back in the wrong place. <laughs> we'll try a new one. It must have been the plant, not the place. Exactly, yeah. couldn't be me. Exactly. And, and by so the way, good point. Oh yeah, right. and, they're not calling it a prairie. You're right. It's but kind of the concept of well you're the one who brought it up which is this is not a (laughs) no 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 it's 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 all good the idea that we're we're dealing with uh contrived areas this is they're not real you know i i i did a talk that i uh, 10 years ago i was telling people there's no such thing as a natural garden uh and and that's because um, it's okay. There's a cyclone fence that ain't natural. There's wires overhead that ain't natural. Your soil has been uh, altered beyond recognition. If you live in the city or the suburbs, that ain't natural. The combination of plants you put in that ain't natural. Even if some of them are native to the area, would they have grown in that particular spot at that you know this particular time? Who knows? Um, so right. it's all contrived. And so the idea and the and the other thing that we're not addressing here, and we need to, which is there's an art to this as well there's beauty to it we want it to look good and we have expectations as gardeners as and and as a culture as to what looks good in our yards and so we have to balance all of those things and yes there's been a swing towards natives and i think that's a really good thing um you know we talked to doug tallamy two weeks ago about that and and why we should have native plants in our yards we talked to uh the uh, kelsey and tristan shaw from possibility place nursery and they grow native plants very important stuff but we all know that our yards are not going to have only natives so how do we balance that and how do we still make it look good? You know, and that's where I think Lurie Gardens is one of my favorite places. All of you mentioned Roy Diblick in his book, No K N O W Maintenance, excuse me. He um talking about plants that go together and mixing cultivated and native plants and cult- native var plants together so that you can have beauty with minimal maintenance. And I I lived in the city for twenty plus years, 26, 27 years. And I went looking at pictures of your yard, Mike, it made me miss my old garden, which was all plants in a small space. And you know what, I wanted a little bit of everything. And I like your idea. Maybe it's the new movement is the contrived garden, you know, (laughs) seriously, you know, creating what we want, we have to live in a neighborhood, it doesn't mean you have to conform, but you have to be respectful. You know, I had a little bit of grass just to make my neighbors feel okay that it was a planned <laughs> garden. You know, it took me longer to get the mower out of the garage than it did to cut the it grass. It does. Me too. Right? It's like I'm maneuvering that sucker. He's <laughs> like, oh, get it out of here. Oh, I can't even fit it through here. Um, and in fact, uh, I want to show uh, folks some of the uh, the photos. that pay- And by the way, oh, what I wanted to mention, you mentioned dead uh, nettle, which is uh, lamium. All right. right. Now. What's the difference between lamium and lamiastrum? Well, and they put lamiastrum in with lamium now, just to keep you confused. Oh, really? And lamiastrum, okay. yeah, is the one that's got, it's a little more yellow. It's got a yellow flower, a little more upright. It's really aggressive. I did see it listed oh. as invasive, which was surprising. Um, but they threw it in with lamium now. So that have, I can't keep up with all the name changes. I try really hard, and I'm always surprised. Like, really? They did that to us again? They do. So I, 
I would, you know, I think lamium is less aggressive than what used to be lamiastrum, which is, I'm trying to think of the common name for that. There's lame, um, uh, well, let's look there, it up. Yeah, I'm looking it, at lamiastrum here. Right. And then I think they, maybe they named it, moved it back. But that last I looked, they moved it into the lamium group. But, you know, a lot of times, a lot yeah, of yellow, growers yellow are like, we're not changing Thank yellow, you. Yellow Archangel. Yellow yeah. Archangel. That's the yes, one a lot of people grow. You. And I got to tell you, um, I wrote a column up about this for the late, great Chicagoland Gardening Magazine. When Kathleen and I had our home out in the Pacific Northwest, guess what we put in the ground in a rainforest? Okay. In a rainforest was Lamiastrum. All right. Had no clue. No idea. And that sucker just, just started going out and out and out. And yeah, and then we started trying to control it, and it was too late. Oh. Uh, and, and and in fact, there like is no your leg as you walked by. Yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> they're they're planning on renaming uh, Olympic National Park uh, Yellow Archangel After... Park. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and you, and we don't want to be that person that's responsible. I am that person. Right? Okay. Yeah. I know. And now everybody yeah. knows, Mike. I'm they don't. They don't let me into Washington State anymore. Okay. <laughs> And it was unintentional. I think that's. I think. I think that's what I want to help people do is, and we all make those mistakes because we find out more and more about those plants that we love that become invasive. And so, I took some of my favorite things out of the book, and I don't grow them anymore because you know I don't want to be part of the problem. I don't want. I have oaks behind my house. I'm working on getting rid of the buckthorn and honeysuckle, which is winning right now. But I don't want to be the one that has any invasives in there because of me, right? Yeah. That I purposely, you know, I think accidentally we all make those mistakes. And like you said, you paid the price: pulling, moving, removing. Uh, yeah, yeah. you know, it's it's just... one, of, one of our watchers says they put in dead metal many dead nettle many years ago and ripped it out. Because it was so invasive 15 years ago, and it still pops up every year. And and that should be our clue, right? That should yeah. be our clue that, uh-oh. And, and that's not an insult to you, to the person who wrote in, because we've all done that. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, man, I loved squills. I told people, oh, it's beautiful. And I see it in people's yards blooming right now. And I'm like, that's my fault. I'll show you one right here. This is my backyard. Look in the lower right oh. corner, that little blue you see there. That's yes. th that there it is. Um, and, uh, and that's popping up in, in a bunch of places. It's, it's in the oh, yeah. front it's yard everywhere. now and I have no idea how it got to the front yard. Um, but this is my See, little, as you said, oh, it's Melinda, beautiful. well, it's, it's popping. It's, you know, there's, there's some, you can see the daffodils and there's some tulips way in the back and you can see my containers. Uh, the ones on the right have, uh, pak choy and spinach and lettuce, uh, and peas and the one, uh, round one and not in the center. Cause that's a bird bath, uh, which I use a, a, a little tray, uh, uh, uh terracotta, um, what, what do they call that? Saucer. Saucer? Uh, yeah, yeah. I use terracotta saucers for uh, my bird baths. It seems to work just fine. But the, the circle uh, on the left, that's got lettuces in it. And we're going to hang that up at some point and then just have them there. Uh, but the, the most interesting thing, you talk about lawn. If you look in the center and then it sort of branches to the right, you'll see the area and you'll see these patches of bright green. Um, yeah. those, those patches are either... Um, uh, crocus uh, uh, leaves, which oh, I had crocuses in the yard, 
or sedges. And the grass cannot compete with the sedges, I'll have you know. It's just I've got these sedges that pop up everywhere, and I don't care because I know they're, you know, they're good for nature. Uh, they're a good thing to have. Uh, and the lawn itself, ah, eh, you know, it's there so I can walk barefoot if I need to. Um, and, and that's kind of it. And there's, there's all kinds of things there, but, uh, that's, so that's kind of what it looks like, uh, right now. Uh, but I want to pop in a couple of things. Uh, this is the, the front yard. Um, and the, uh, the daffodils are rocking and the tulips are about to rock. Um, Peggy sent me some photographs. She's got a a couple of wonderful ones like this. Nice. Uh, uh, Peggy, you can tell us what that is. That's the um, the blood root coming up, and ignore the thistle that's I'm seeing in that photo now. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it awful? You don't notice it until you share the photo, right? I've had a yeah, I'm like yeah, but this was... didn't get that one. <laughs> yeah, um, this is all naturalizing blood root that's popping up, and uh, kind of in between some of the trillium. And those Oops. white, that white is so brilliant, isn't it? I just use yeah. it in my shady garden yeah. in the city, and I just it just brightens that spot up. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's in I, Peggy's my garden. My yard too. is so full of trillium, so that's that's what that is. And um, oh, beautiful. You know, it's probably a squill going through there too. Uh, it's yeah, it probably <laughs> is. Uh, but you know, uh, Peggy gave me a blood root three years ago, I want to say. Um, and I, and this is the first year it's bloomed and it popped just the other day. Um, and it's in front and it's, it's funny. It's this lone little blood root. It's just one plant. I need to get more, but it had five blooms on it. One of which got blasted by something yesterday. Who knows what was going on there? It'll naturalize. It took about three years and now it's starting to pop up all over the yard. But see that trillium on the right there. It's a red trillium that's about to bloom for Peggy. Mm -hmm. And she gave me some. This is my yard. Look at these guys. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, And so um, it's it's nice to to put stuff like that and... and, um, one plant that I think is totally underused, and Peggy has it, and, we, and I have it, this is Peggy's yard, is pulmonaria. Mm-hmm. Um, because, uh, tell us about that, Melinda. Pulmonaria is a plant that is great all year. Uh, well, not, not in the winter because it dies back. But um, it's, it's wonderful not only because of the blooms in the spring, but because of the foliage. You bet. And it's a great substitute for hosta. The deer tend to leave it be. I always say tend to leave it be because we know deer will eat anything if there are enough of them and they're hungry. But I kind of say if you're tired of fighting the animals with your hostas, this is shade tolerant. The leaves are attractive, like you said. They come in multiple size leaves with spotting or streaking. Um, The flowers, you could get white, you could get the blue, you could get the raspberry red. Um, There's a wide variety. That's the same plant. They kind of mix right. and match on mine, color-wise. Yeah, they kind of fade, change colors as they age. And Dawn, who works with me, has this. And she said it's what she watches for when the hummingbirds come back because hers are sure. still blooming the time the hummingbirds are back. And so you're, ah. supporting, you're supporting the early bees, which need our help, the early pollinators, those early visitors. But then also kind of keep an eye out for the hummingbirds as they make their way up to our neck of the woods. But it's one of my favorite plants, too. It's just, it, it, like you said, Mike, lots of seasonal interest. And I think that's one of the things people overlook. We think of perennials as, okay, it's in bloom. But I like to think of, do they look good as they're emerging? 
you know, think of peonies when they come out, they're tinged red, and then you have the flowers. And if they're not diseased, you've got nice leaves. And then in the fall, they turn mm -hmm. kind of purpley red. And so you've yeah. got three seasons of interest. Willow Amsoni is one of my favorite, you know, nice leaves, the icy blue flowers, they turn amber in fall. And I was in St. Louis and in their uh, city garden, they left it standing. And even though the the Hibipria has those, um, the willow leaf um, Amsoni, the willow Amsoni has really fine leaves, all those dead leaves added texture to the winter garden. Now we're in the Midwest. So, you know, our idea of winter interest is very different than those in Florida and Georgia. Yeah. You know, they have great yeah. myrtles in Georgia. We have nine marks. So, you know, yeah. it's a difference, but it, that subtle texture in the garden really made, it really looked good. So I think when you're selecting your plants, it's one of the things I try to do, you know, especially as a small, I don't know how much room you have. I forget how much space you have, Peggy. Do you have a large lot or a small? Less than Mike. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Not much less. They're, they're very close uh, in size. Yeah, but yeah, except much of mine is underwater right now. Yeah. Or oh, under mud. Okay. okay. Um, and then That's at least if the rain heads. Oh, oh, oh. And oh, black walnut oh. next door and <laughs> okay. heavy clay. And, <laughs> and chipmunks. Okay, Peggy. Oh, and chipmunks. What, yeah. what could be wrong with where you garden? Ask Peggy. Uh, right. And oh shade. my goodness. And shade. And well, shade. not as much because her neighbors suddenly a few years ago just chopped old down neighbors. all their trees. Old neighbors, yes. Yeah, the old neighbors. The, including the black walnut or is the black walnut the other? No, neighbor? that's there. It's still there. That's there. Okay. That's there. Yeah. Um, Roy, Roy but, Dibley but has a great garden under many oaks. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I think. What were you going to say about Roy? Being, Oh, no, I was going to say under his, he has a, a plant, he, they have black walnuts and they have a garden underneath it at Northwind mm -hmm. Perennials. So I always send people there that are looking for how do I create a garden in, under black walnuts. And so he's got good examples of plants, a lot of wildflowers. He's got some bleeding hearts. I mean, the lists are not complete that are out there, as you know. Yeah. yeah. But, um, you know, a lot of the universities Bernardo, do. They work. Martin Arboretum, good list to give you a starting point. And yeah. so, yeah, I'm sorry to hear that because that's very, uh, that's so discouraging. You know, it limits yeah. your gardening and you, but, yeah, but the okay. trilliums She's a gardener. They love it. <laughs> the trilliums love it and the Jack in the Pulpits love it. And um, you've got a few others that are just doing great. Real, real quick picture here um, in my yard. Speaking of. Oh. My May, May apples apple. next to the Virginia well, bluebells. Blue yeah, and uh, those are a couple of natives. And but but you want to talk about thugs? Um, both of those <laughs> can be thugs. Uh, so I'm letting oh, yeah. them. I'm letting them duke it out here. Duke it out. And that's a great point, Mike. When you put a combination together, the plant should be equally assertive if you want to end up with two plants at the end. So let them duke it out. <laughs> um, my my ex-husband, I love Virginia bluebells. He was a horticulturist. And he's like, and I'm like, let's put some Virginia bluebells here. And he goes, oh, those things are really aggressive. We're not going to put them in. So I, being as mature as, you know, why are we divorced? But I planted <laughs> someone he was at work. And the next year he goes, why did those Virginia bluebells come from? He said, oh, I bet a squirrel <laughs> put them in the yard. <laughs> And yes, they took over, but they duked it out with. I had hot, it was shady hostas and other things. Guess what? But like, they're so nice. They they and and they will go away later in the season. Right. You just they, cover they those fill big in the same their bulbs. And, and something they fill in between the bulbs. Something I discovered last Sunday from Jeff Scrutney at Labau Woods. Um, 
and we were talking about we were looking at uh, uh, lesser celandine which is an incredible, oh. just, you want, so much worse than almost anything else you can imagine. We'll take over entire forests, the floor of entire forests. And we were looking, uh, there was some, there were some Virginia bluebells growing in amongst the lesser celandine, and we were talking to Jeff. And Jeff said, uh, if you want to plant more uh, Virginia bluebells, go ahead, because it's the one plant that can actually outcompete lesser celandine. Um, and then, oh. so our, we're thinking, okay, we'll just sort of wander through with some seed, Virginia blueberry <laughs> seeds, you know, nobody needs to know that, uh, that we're there. And, uh, but that's what he, so he everybody said. everybody listening, don't tell. I, I, right. Exactly. <laughs> I, I never said it. I never said it. All right. We need to take a, um, and a, I just a, wanted to, and real quick, Marsh Marigold is the good guy that often is mistaken for lesser selling. So keep that in mind. We want to keep the good one, get rid of the bad one. I, I, I have I have a photo of Lesser Celandine that I'm going to pop up uh, when we come back so people can see what it looks like. But you're right. Excellent. It does look a lot, lot like marsh marigold. Although in the Pacific Northwest, we couldn't control marsh marigolds. They would run rampant. So it depends, again, where you are. Um, so you planted? <laughs> oh, no, listen. We, we should. No, we, you know, we also had uh, uh, horsetail ferns. Okay. So, you know, we couldn't. And we were only out there for a couple of weeks at a time, uh, and then and you couldn't control anything. I mean, I would spend the first three days just trying to mow the lawn around the house so the grass wasn't four feet high. So, uh, you know, that's – or whack it. I actually I ended up whacking it most of the time, not, not mowing it at all because the mower was useless. Um, so, yeah, no, you know, when you're, in, when you're in a natural area, if you're in a, a – a, a, a temperate rainforest and stuff takes hold. Um, you just kind of go, okay, whatever, whatever. You know, people who lived there were working all the time to keep their little gardens. You know, but they, if somebody actually spread decades ago a um, uh, 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 hydrangea, macrophy, macrophylla, macrophylla, uh, however you pronounce it. It's the blue mophead hydrangea. Right. They they set it along the roadway. And so every spring, you drive down this road, and in the middle of the rainforest, the temperate rainforest, you see these blue mophead hydrangeas blooming because somebody said, wow, that looks great. Well, guess what? They love that climate there, and uh, they just spread like crazy. So this is what gardeners do. Sometimes they're well-intentioned, but they're just goofy things that gardeners do that cause problems. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, all right, don't be goofy in your yard. <laughs> Try not to cause problems. All right, we need to take a short break. That's uh, You know, I need to say your name more often for people listening on the podcast. Melinda Myers, author of the Midwest Gardener's Handbook. There's the product <laughs> Thanks, placement. Peggy. Here we go. All right. And go to Melinda Myers, M-Y-E-R-S dot com. She's got videos. She's got uh uh, stories. I mean, uh, we didn't even mention your background, your radio, television, yeah. print. Um, 273,000 books. Right, exactly. <laughs> and counting. And uh, all, of, all of them being revised right now. Uh, and we're going to talk about, you're, you're doing a talk in the area and a bunch of talks. So we will mention that when we come back. So everybody stick around. And we're going to see a video of Jumping Worms. So stick around. I guess. (laughs) No, not so much. Yay. It's the Mike Novak show with Peggy Malecki. We shall return. 
From spring seed and soil treatments to summer foliar feeding to fall stubble digesters, Blazing Star provides microbial tools from tiny biologicals for natural and organic farmers. They have solutions for home gardeners too. And Blazing Star offers agroecological education and consulting, especially for permaculture work in zones four and five. Learn more about these great folks at blazing-star.com. I don't really have a favorite tree specifically. Trees are so different and at different ages they have different things that make them interesting. Scots pine trees have fantastic bark. The giant redwood is fantastic again because of the bark and the size of it. My name is Gary Hill and trees are my thing. But I'm also into shrubs. Keep calm and prune on. Hey everybody, let's trash the beach. Toss junk up and down the beach. Broken glass and a bottle of bleach. Used condoms and underwear. on so many levels i know it is it's just the i knew you would appreciate i was watching peggy i was watching you watch that and your eyes were really big and um i i found what what what, what, i don't want to know what they sat on uh uh, yeah it uh i found a bunch of of um classic and and old-timey PSAs, environmental PSAs. Now, I can't play most of them because they're horrifying. Some of them, uh, the messages are just so dark that I said, no, 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 no. I'm not going to play these, but they're out there uh, on the inner tubes. And, um, and I found that one. I said, okay, that's kind of fun. And it, 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 it sort of highlights what people really do is just, they just throw their garbage all over the beach. And, you know, if you're driving, I don't know how yeah. you guys react, but you'll be behind somebody or next to somebody and they just open the window and they just drop garbage out onto the road. And you think, what, 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 what's wrong with you? I know. And the stuff that you, the, the stuff that I have found or, or we have found over the years, you know, cause I've, I've organized a lot of beach cleanups over the years. It, it's just amazing because I mean, a lot of it's washing up. So it's things that either have washed out in storm water or the people have thrown off their boats. But in either case, it's like, wow, what's this doing on the beach? Yeah, and I and that was another reason why I played that one because I know you've done a lot of beach cleanups, Peggy. So we'll we'll see that one again at some point. Welcome back. I'll to tell the- you a couple of stories off air. <laughs> oh, you got to you got to tell a couple of stories on air because people need to know this. They need to know. No, they're just and, a mess. People people are weird. But and it used to be. The main thing you found were uh, cigarette butts, and now it's it's cigarette butts and plastic. Not, and plastic. 
plastic um, pieces. Yeah, of every shape and size, right? Yeah. And cigarette butts yeah. are harmful for our birds. Our birds will often pick them up and eat them. And so mm -hmm. then you got the nicotine. And so I don't think a lot of, and I, that's, you know, I don't smoke and I'm so sick of seeing cigarette butts. But um, that was something I just stumbled across a couple of years ago that is that going to help? Probably not. But at least maybe it makes it more important to pick up those cigarette butts if you find them so the birds don't get into yeah. them. Well, the good news is that, you know, cigarette smoking is going down in the U.S., but there's still, you know, billions smoked each year. Um, I saw, and speaking of birds, I'm watching yesterday, I just happened to have uh, CBS News on, and there was a story out of Illinois um, about uh, bald eagles uh, just dropping dead um, due no. to lead, lead poisoning. And it's, it's a lot yes. because of hunting um, mm -hmm. and the lead in bullets and there's no reason to have that and it's killing all kinds of wildlife and it's passed along the food chain because it might not just be a bird that's you know sometimes it's a bird eating carrion a deer that was shot and left all right right and and then the uh, some birds vultures and um and and eagles or whoever are coming in and take but it might be because they grabbed a pigeon that was feasting on something else um and it and it moves up the latter. Um, and uh, it's just horrifying. And this is a serious problem. Lead contamination is a serious problem in the United States. And Peggy, we need to do a show segment on that at some point. Um, so anyway, what, hey, on that happy note, okay. uh, let's, I was hey, say, let's, let's talk gardening. Let's talk about Let's At talk about my, blooming my flowers. Say, I thought it was something you did because I'm like, well, that kind of looks like a mic kind of thing. Let's get crazy. <laughs> After I saw you in your bee outfit, I'm like, where is he on that beach? Yeah. In a, oh, yeah. You my... know, a 1960s bathing suit, you know. <laughs> uh, and by, by the way, speaking of birds, and this is a good point, uh, one of our viewers is uh, pointing out that um, – a PSA, um, the Illinois Department of Natural Resources is recommending residents stop using bird feeders and baths until oh. the end of May due to an influenza strain that it's uh, impacting wild and domestic birds. And yes, that's one of the stories we're going to be talking about at 10 o'clock is um, the avian flu, which um, I pointed out, I want to say two or three months ago in, in Israel, and then it popped up here. And now it's 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 spreading across the country, and some wild birds and a lot of domestic birds have had to be culled, and um, it's a serious issue right now. Uh, so yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, I should probably take my bird baths in and get them out of there, um, out of the backyard. So let's see if we can track down that information, Peggy, because um, I'd like or anybody watching us and wants to give us a link to um, to where we might find more information about that. That would be awesome. Um, okay, so welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Uh, now that we've had all these alerts, yes, and we're right. talking <laughs> Melinda <you>. Myers. <laughs> That's right. Uh, let's let's get this out of the way so that uh, we don't uh, miss it. You've got a couple of uh, things coming oh, up, okay. and I I put links uh, on uh, my blog post at MikeNovak.net. Mm -hmm. uh, up on uh, May tenth. Right. Yes. I'm going to talk spring flowering shrubs at Pasquazy. Um, if you haven't been to Pasquazy, they're in Lake Bluff off of North Shore Drive. And they have wonderful plants, great staff, 
wonderful indoor outdoor gardening furniture and all kinds of things but um because of covid we started doing webinars and you know with the state we weren't sure so we decided let's do one a webinar so i'm going to talk spring flower and shrubs it's for we're just limiting the advertising because they want to make this a special thing for their customers and listeners of mike and peggy show and so may 10th natural awakening and natural waking. Thank you, Peggy. That was a nice, I really appreciate you putting that in there. And so um, I'm going to talk spring flowering shrubs. And one of the things I find is shrubs are a great way to reduce your maintenance. When I worked for the city of Milwaukee, we did a survey on, we had annuals in the boulevard. We had perennials. We had some grass. We had trees and shrubs. And we looked at the maintenance and the labor costs. And the shrubs really had the lowest maintenance, so they were the most economical. So if, as gardeners, you're trying to minimize your workload, add some spring, summer, fall blooming shrubs. So I'm going to talk about spring bloomers, some things that they provide seasonal interest like Father Gillum, one of my favorites. It blooms in the spring before the leaves come out and it'll continue. Nice leaves, many varieties are blue-green, and then in the fall, gorgeous fall color. And so looking for those plants, it can be that backbone of your garden or provide the focal point, reducing maintenance. If you have, thank you, yay, <laughs> ask and you receive. There you go. Um, and, it's, and they're lightly fragrant, so it's wonderful because you can have seasonal interest with these larger plants. So. You know, for Peggy and Mike, and when I was in the city, I used dwarf compact varieties because I liked that framework they provided throughout the year, but I didn't have a lot of space. But now I have more room, so I really count on the shrubs to really give me some seasonal interest, take up some space, uh, you know, shelter for the birds, food for the birds, host for many of our butterfly, the caterpillars. And so they do a lot of good things. So it's one thing you might well, how, want to consider. How large will that, that dwarf Father Gillo get? There's um the dwarf one um, is like three feet to five feet depending on the variety that you um, choose and I think blue mist I think is the cultivar that's only about three feet tall and so so it's a nice one because you could tuck that in the rabbits do like it so you need to kind of keep mm. an eye on it the rabbits are eating other things in my yard so they haven't bothered my father Gilla. And um, I've been using plant skid on my, you know, the plants that the deer and the rabbits really enjoy the most. And I let them nibble on other things. So they're getting plenty to eat in my yard. But, um, you know, using an organic grain resistant repellent like that will help you enjoy those plants that the rabbits and deer like to eat if rabbits are a problem in your yard. Um, but it's a beauty. It's And um, so they're just some really nice ones out there. And, uh, and I'll pop um, an uh, azalea here. Um, yes. Um, and I, I actually have a, a, a Herbert in my yard. Are you familiar with Herbert? Okay. Um, I am not. Okay. I've had that for a while, and it's one of the few um, azaleas slash rhododendrons. You know, rhododendrons I gave up on years ago because they want acidic soil, and you're not getting it in the Chicago area. All right? And it's crazy to, to, to fight nature that way. Um, but uh, I found that uh, some azaleas will hold their own, and my Herbert looks a lot like uh, the one we're seeing here. Uh, this is Karen, apparently, which is, <laughs> if you want to be a Karen. Herbert's a... sister. Yeah, I know. That's, yeah, poor Karen. Uh, yeah. I know. Oh, dear. Uh, but uh, so um, these are just some of the things uh, you'll be talking about uh, uh, during your presentation. As you say, is online only uh, or can people show up? 
All right. Well, you're doing it from um, home, it's on, I assume. I'm, it's, I'm doing it from home, so it yeah. is a webinar. We're hoping maybe if things mm-hmm. are better in the fall that I'll be in person. I really miss seeing folks. Um, uh, and then I have other webinars that everyone's invited to, which has been very exciting. I mean, in person is better, right? We love talking to people and, and yeah. sharing that way. But the webinars have let me stay in touch with people. I, I talk to gardeners all over the world, which is really exciting, and they share their insight from where they garden. And um, with Pasquazy, we thought this is a way I can stay connected with their customers. And thanks to Peggy and you for getting the word out for us so that people find out. And you just go to their website and you can get the link. And it's in the Natural Awakenings. I think there's more information in there as well. I should thank you. Yes. Well, hey, exactly. And so um, I hope people will join me. It's spring flowering shrubs. It's a great way to start your season. We saw your gardens with the wildflowers and the daffodils. And why I love spring, it's like we made it through another winter, right? (laughs) And so the spring flowering shrubs just add to that, you know, oh, the season has started. So some things that you can put in your yard and enjoy. Well, and I think that uh, there's, oh, go ahead, Peggy. I was going to say, Dan Costa says he loves his 30-plus-year-old Herbert Azalea. So. Oh, good. I'm <laughs> oh, glad there's else more is... Herberts out there. There are. Yes, there's more Herberts. Um, and, I th- and, I, and one of the things that uh, people tend to forget about uh, are shrubs. Um, they, yes. you know, they focus on perennials and annuals and even trees, and somehow the shrubs get missed. And um, this is – and especially if you can get something that is a native. Uh, I was looking at spice bush. Uh, Jeff Scretney oh, was showing spice us the bush. spice spice bush was just mm-hmm. popping uh, at Labau yeah. Woods last Sunday. I've um, been trying to track a source for a bigger than six inch plant to add to my landscape because the fragrant flowers, the berries are edible for you and the birds, yellow fall color. It's a small mm-hmm. scale tree, large shrub. It's beautiful. It is. And yeah. And so we just need to get nurseries growing more of it. So mm-hmm. Well, you find I'm, a source. I'll drive to Chicago. If I had to bet, points? that's what I'm thinking. If I had to bet, uh, I would think I possibility. Think that's where mine came from. Oh, yeah. Okay, and they and they're shade tolerant too, so they're perfect. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, right. In fact, the the ones that we looked at at Laba were in the middle of the woods there. Um, so I'm writing that down so I can drive I, down I think, and go get my. Spices. I mean, I've had mine for a while. I think <laughs> it came from. Um, one of the spring native plant sales, like Lake County Forest Preserve or something. Okay. Uh, and uh, I don't know. Uh, here's, uh, uh, I promised you guys this uh, earlier. Here is Jeff Scretney yes. and uh, Mike Novak. You can't see my hair as much as you can see his beard. Uh, but I was in, <laughs> I was in full uh, mountain man mode uh, for that. And, and for, for listeners who haven't been with us for that long, Jeff has been on the show talking birds We've done um, live video out at Laba pre-COVID with Jeff. Oh, nice. And he said uh, he will come back on the show and visit us uh, when the migratory season is over. Um, all right. Uh, one of the things you talk about in your book uh, is jumping worms. And, and, and I said, as I pointed out in the, the, the preview we shot the other day, you can tell that it's uh, uh, been revised because jumping worms are a new deal here in the Midwest. Uh, do you want to explain what a, what a jumping worm is, Melinda? 
so these are worms that they're not, they don't overwinter as adults. They overwinter as cocoons or eggs here in the colder climates. They came in with fishing bait and now are coming in with plants and being shared from one gardener to the next in mulches, compost, or, you know, here, have part of my plant, which we love to do. But if you have jumping worms, you're sharing that along with it. They, in one season, can get really big, you know, up to nine inches long. When you grab them, they kind of, you know, they jump around. They they kind of, what did you call them? You had a different name you were calling writhing. them. Writhing. Like, I call them writhing worms. Writhing worms. worms. Yeah. They were writhing worms. And if you grab them, they'll break off their tail and escape. And, and they can, they can uh, go from your garden and spread like 17 acres in a season. So they're really hard wow. to manage. And they don't have a cure for them. Um, you know, you can heat your, somebody told me that, well, you just heat your soil to 104 degrees. Well, I have plants in my garden. So I have, yeah. I have jumping worms too. Yeah. And I try, I, you know, I clean my tools. I use my different pair of boots for the gardens I know that have it, but it's really hard to keep them in one area. And because you can track them easily. And, and somebody said, well, where did they come from? And I said, well, I was buying mulch and compost before we knew this was an issue. Could have come in there. People share their plants with me. Could have come in there. I buy plants. Yep. Good nurseries are trying to manage and, and are monitoring that. Um, and they're working hard. There's a great uh, YouTube video by Brad Herrick of the UW uh, Arboretum. And he did a, a webinar on it. One of the best, there's no solution, but he explains it and at least gives you some idea. People were using a product called Early Bird, which golf courses use to kill earthworms because earthworms aren't native to this part of the country, but they don't spread. Right. But they're causing problems in the Dakotas and Minnesota where fisher people throw their bait in the woods and they eat the organic matter. They disrupt the soil biology and plants die, you know, we've ruined that native soil. And I think that's one of the things we're seeing in gardens too. I have really pure sand. So I think for me, there's not much organic, I keep adding organic matter and the earth, ah. it, but it's kind of the same, I think, as it, when it doesn't, when I haven't added. So I think are, for are, me, are you, I have you, an advantage there. You're not near a lake, are you? I'm in the kettle, near the Kettle Moraine That's area. That's what I thought. And, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and my soil is like brown sugar with rocks thrown in, a lot of rock. <laughs> and you know, I went from heavy clay in the city yep. that I'd mended for 26 years. My soil was so great, and the people <laughs> that bought my house didn't want plants. I didn't take the trees out. They were some nice specimens, but they wanted grass. So there's mm -hmm. grass dying in the shade on some of the best soil in oh no i'm so oh it's i know i oh it just killed me right but you can't uh, take your soil with yeah. you so yes you can you I, just I, you I just you just get a dump truck and then you say <laughs> you're on your own pal you, you can slam some turf down right, there. right in the contract Soil yeah. comes yes, exactly. <laughs> All right. I get the top three inches. Anyway, I'm, sorry, we digress. <laughs> oh, that's okay. No, that's okay. Hey, listen, you wrote it. You write about it in your book, Product Placement, uh, the Midwest <laughs> Gardener's Handbook, yeah. about how uh, these subdivisions uh, will strip off all the soil, mm -hmm. and then they'll put the rubble back down, and then they'll put two inches right. of soil and slam some turf on top of that, and you yeah. think you have or a less. garden. Yeah, or, yes. or they'll put and it down, 20... then they'll roll over it, and then they'll oh, put yes, that. to ensure to compact whatever they added. Yeah. And a lot of places are being better about saying, "I want the topsoil, you know, store it on my property and put it back in." And we're seeing that with some builders, but you need to be the one to ask for that to happen. 
because it's yeah. not going to happen. They'll sell it to someone else, right? Yeah. You need to be aware and ask for that. Put it in the contract, as you said. Protect those trees. I know you, Bartlett is one of your sponsors, and I know they are have a lot of certified arborists, and a lot of those folks have fought contractors and builders trying to protect those key plants that people buy the property for right yeah and so yeah another thing to be aware of if you're building uh, oh there's just so much there that uh you yeah, need, sorry. To, you need we... to be aware of that's okay that's that's quite all right all right i want to play this for you because this was last year i took this last year and this uh we'll just take a look hey folks here's my gangway and as you can see i'm cleaning up some leaves that accumulated over the course of the year, but I want to show you something. I haven't gone down in here yet, but I have a feeling that if we pull this out, we're going to see worms. Huge oh yeah, look at it. Look at worms. It. Yeah. yeah, like that. Oh, there's more right there. Look at the size of these guys. Look at them writhe. And I'm pretty sure they're. Uh, get that out of there. Pretty sure they're uh, jumping worms. I call them writhing worms because when you they writhe when you touch them like that. And these guys are huge. They're the Asian carp of the worm world. Here. They are. Yeah. It is. Yeah. I mean, you can see they're they're the, uh, they're they're so huge. Decomposing. Oh, there's another one. Oh, that's the same one. He's just still trying to get away. No, it is a second one. So. No, it's yep. another one. Jumping worms are here all oh. over the place. Oh, boy. Isn't that fun? <laughs> and you know they're not out yet. They because they overwinter as eggs and cocoons. You don't start seeing them until a little later. And last year with the drought, I thought, oh, good, maybe that reduced the population. As soon as we got rain, boy, they were coming up. Boom. Yeah. So that didn't help at all. And I figured there had to be something good with the drought. But that so if you don't, that. if you have jumping worms. Um, and you're, you're kind of stuck because you shouldn't be giving your plants away. You probably right. shouldn't be giving any soil away. Um, even if you exactly. don't see them, if you've seen them in your yard, there's nothing you can do because the eggs might be on the soil or in a container or something. And you're, and, and it was, like I said, it's like, uh, from the seventies, give a dose to the one you love most. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of the same thing. You're stuck. You, you can't, you shouldn't. And you, and if you don't have them, you got to be really careful where you're getting your plant material. Um, certain... Exactly. And who's visiting your yard? Are their shoes clean? I mean, some of the master gardeners wow. make you put on those booties like you do when you visit a house, you know, for an open house and just avoid bringing them. So I try to always wear, set aside a pair of shoes when I that I don't use in my garden, that I only, you know, wear when I go someplace else. And that sounds crazy, but... You know, I don't want to be the one that brought jumping worms to somebody. <laughs> and you know, it's like your your yellow archangel. We don't want to do that. <laughs> that's right, but and, but they're here. I mean, the point is I, well, they're here. There's really not a lot. They're go, they're going to continue to spread because it's so easy, um, and people are unaware of it. So that's why I wanted to include that. I wanted to make people aware so that we slow the spread. They are looking for ways to help manage them because they do destroy the soil. And if they get in our natural areas, it's like what the earthworms are doing in the Dakotas and northern Minnesota, where the earthworms have, in northeast U.S. are eating the organic matter. These just do it faster. They eat more. They spread faster. Well, so, and, and, you know, and what we may they not be able to... What they leave oh, behind, you know, one of the things you can say about earthworms that's good is that when they poop out the stuff, it's it's really rich in nutrients. But guess what? 
the the stuff that comes from the jumping worms is not. It's grady. It doesn't hold uh, the nutrients in the it water right. the way that the, the, the earthworms do. So now we've got um, earthworms on steroids here. Um, it's just... Yes, that's a good description. Yeah. So just don't, you know, don't be part of spreading the problem. You're right. And I hope they'll find some options and some solutions, but why make it worse? We may not be able to stop them totally, but why contribute, make it easier for them to spread? Well, we got like 10 seconds here. What did we miss? Okay. <laughs> come come listen to me doing the past glazing right. spring flowering shrubs and other webinars that are listed on my website. Yeah, the but webinars. Glazy, go to their, their website or I... Natural Awakenings. Yeah, um, I've got a link there. It says you can find more about her upcoming presentations and past talks here because people can go and look at stuff you've done in the past as well. Exactly. And as uh, we have uh, indicated, uh, Melinda knows her stuff. I'm sorry we only have an hour. I mean, you know, we we never well, plan <laughs> these things, really. We just sort of start talking, and uh, that's what I love about it, uh, about having you on the show. It's that uh, I don't have to do any prep. It. <laughs> well, and I learn something from both of you every time. So, you know, it's it's mutually beneficial. And I always appreciate the opportunity you guys give me to reach out to your followers. So thank you. I was going to show the Celandine. Uh, oh, yeah. Lesser Celandine, but it, 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 it just refuses to show up on my uh, uh, inbox. I sent myself the pictures and I don't know where they've gone, but I also had a wait. I'm going to hold this up. And maybe you have an idea of what this is, because this is one thing we saw in our walk the other day. Do you have any idea what that is? It was just popping. Uh, it, it looks was... like some kind of willow, actually. Is yeah, that what that was? Like willow. Yeah. So yeah, was... isn't that a lovely bloom? Very though? cool. And the red. Yeah, part. it is gorgeous. So that was. Uh... It's like a willow. Yeah, it probably and then was. On my Facebook. And on my Facebook, I did a post on the difference between celandine poppy and um, marsh marigold. So if you go back, it should be in, you know, earlier posts. I'm working with aquatic invasive species, and that's one of the big ones, too, not only in, on land and forest, but along waterways. So check that out. So there's Excellent. a picture of both there. Okay. Melinda Myers, go to Melinda Myers, M-Y-E-R-S dot com. Um, we'll do it again. I mean, I know you, you're, you're like uh, Doug Tallamy. You've got people who, who schedule your appointments and then tell you when you, when you're supposed to show up. Uh, <laughs> exactly. So whenever you have a, a free uh, 20 minutes, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk to you again, probably in 2027 uh, is when okay, we'll Okay. I'll put, yeah. I'll pencil that in. Yeah, please guys. do. Okay. You're such we'll get together maybe when summer starts oh that my... would be a good time to talk wouldn't that be great yes oh my goodness wouldn't yeah. it be wonderful to be in person again just uh maybe we'll visit oh. a garden together yeah that would be excellent yeah maybe okay. we can split it's the difference plan. something between here and uh, where you are in uh in wisconsin and There's... I'm okay. I don't mind driving. I don't do it much anymore, so it's great. Okay. <laughs> you know, don't go any places. So just... let's plan that. That would be wonderful. All right. Just don't bring your jumping worms with you, okay? No, I won't. I'll wear my. I'll clean my boots. So oh, we'll be okay. Good. <laughs> and so will I. Absolutely. Okay. All right, okay. Melinda. You have a great Sunday. Okay. Take care. You too. Thanks so much. All right. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. More to come when we return. Please stick around. Hi, I'm Megan Kosensky, and these are Don Redwoods. 
These are one of my favorite trees, and I've spent a lot of time with my family in Northern California looking at the coastal redwoods, which are a different species, but they bear a lot of similarities to the dawn redwoods that we have here on the East Coast. And because they're so similar, you know, they act as a reminder of all my memories that I have with my family. The first time that I saw the coastal redwoods was when I visited my aunt and uncle in Northern California, and they asked what I wanted to do for my 20th birthday. I wanted to go and see the redwoods, and we spent a day touring through the forest, um, seeing these massive trees, and I think that was the first time that I was really like starstruck by trees. And a couple years later, I became an arborist at Bartlett. So 20 years ago, my mom and her siblings planted a dawn redwood in uh, memory of my uncle Kevin. They planted it in his favorite place along the water in Laguna Beach, California. My aunt put a time capsule in the ground so that one day, you know, in a couple hundred years, someone will find it and learn about him and his memory will keep living on. There's so many memories within these trees for me and I think for my entire family. Welcome to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio with just a soup-son of humor. Or is that a dash? Brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Here they are again, Peggy Malecki and Mike Novak. All I need is good food to eat and make me healthy, wealthy, wide awake. Lettuce, tomatoes, root, and bacon. What about those sweet potatoes? All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good tools to make me music, porches, lawn serene. Give me all that I can take. Give me stuff that I can break. Whatever he sings. All right, welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Um, I'm just I looking just... at the daffodils behind you there. Oh, you know pretty? what? Let's let's show those here. This is uh, oops, some of them little little droopy, but uh, this came. Uh, this was picked in the yard just yesterday. I mean, there's just some great stuff here. Just love these I've guys. Got some new varieties just opened this morning that weren't open yesterday. Good. Uh, we've got so many that we can afford to. We're giving some away to our neighbors as well. I pick. It was funny. A um, uh, couple of women and a couple of kids walking their dog late last night at, not late, but at dusk. And I'm standing out in front and or looking at him, waving to him. And I said, "Hey, yeah, uh, anybody want a flower?" And um, um, and then the woman said, oh yeah, that'd be, that'd be nice. And I figure I'll, I'll give a flower to the kid. So I walk around carefully, pull out a, a daffodil, uh, from an area that it, it wouldn't be missed and, and brought it up. And of course, one of the little kids immediately just reaches down and grabs another one and yanks it out. I went, uh, no, no, I think you got to ask if, uh, if, if you're going to do that first. Yeah. And, and this woman sort of, uh, jumped all over him, but, uh, in a nice way, in a nice, nobody was mean. Um, but, uh, 
you know, I'm at a point where I can, I can afford to give away flowers, which is not a bad thing. Nice. Um, uh, we got a bunch of stuff uh, in uh, the Green Dispatch this morning, stuff that uh, we've seen over the last couple of weeks. And by the way, you can go to uh, MikeNovak.net, and if you go to the blog post at the top of the page and, and find the one from this show, and, you'll, and you can tell it because it, it's got the wonderful photo from Peggy's yard of the trillium and the bloodroot. Um, and you scroll down and you'll see the Green Dispatch and all the, the articles that we've been covering. And one that just popped up yesterday that I thought we should put in because it leads into the other stories is a headline at the Trib. As the cost of groceries rises, food pantries across Chicago see increased demand. It has just not stopped is the, and uh, here we are again um, because uh, because of inflation um, and other things and you know still coming out of a pandemic uh, folks and if you think we're done with this yet you're you're living in a fantasy world um, it's it ain't over um, and uh, it's uh, this was uh, specifically one in in Lawndale um, but they had some. Uh, Statistics, grocery and supermarket prices were 8.6% higher this February than in 2021. Um, prices expected to keep rising. Right, 3 to 4% this year. Uh, the price of poultry, which could also be affected by an outbreak of avian influenza, and then there's a link to that there, is expected yeah. to increase by 6 to 7%, and you might be seeing that already. Uh, in in supermarket, and, and it was interesting. Late, go ahead. Oh, I just add, and then you can pop that in. Uh, uh, part of the problem is at this is at a point where um, the government has um, thrown its hands in the well. You know, certain parts of the government, certain parties, shall we say, have decided that uh, we were giving away too much of these these stupid people who just need to eat. Um, so we'll we'll put them on their own. So many government aid programs that were uh, uh, helping folks during the pandemic have expired. And are you going to see them back? Probably not. So, yes, Peggy, you were going to say. I'm looking for where it talks about it in the article. Here we go. Um, so one person who's been coming to the pantry for about a year um, who's got a little girl and she was able to get on food stamps, um, said she's considering starting a garden to grow her own produce, as are other people she knows. Quote, they're talking about, well, if we grow our fruits and vegetables, then we'll be good with those. But she says, what about bread? What about beans? What about rice? What about everything else we need? We can grow some of it, right. which will help, which is which is good that, you know, with with the emphasis on gardening again and all of the urban farms and community gardens, that's helps people who want to grow, but yeah, it doesn't solve the overall. Yeah. So, um, that, that leads to the second article also from the trib. And now of course my, my computer has decided it won't open anything. <laughs> you got well, there's me. a couple of article <laughs> links up here that aren't opening. So, Oh, is that one of them? Oh, I wonder if I screwed yes, that, that up. That is one of them. That is one of them. All right. That's my fault then. I need to go back. So oh, I, I think I know what I did. Is, okay. Yeah. So there's there was an article that um, you're talking about the avian flu. Yeah. And I can find it yeah, here. Yeah. So 
Go so ahead. this was actually an article. Um, there's been a lot of articles on avian flu, particularly um, at factory farms and how it's just spreading yeah. through the flocks. Yeah. But it's also with migratory waterfowl. And uh, actually, Cheryl DeVore wrote the Chicago Tribune article that you're looking for there. Right. Hundreds right. of birds found dead, likely from avian flu at Bakers Lake near Barrington. Quote, I've never seen anything like this. And that actually came from a um, somebody at the Forest Preserve District of Cook County. And this um, seems to be a very concentrated um, avian flu with the cormorants that are roosting at this one um, lake called Bakers Lake in Barrington. I don't have right. the article open, but I remember it because I, I've actually yeah. talked to Cheryl about it. Well, uh, hold on here. Tribune, um, I want to get this because there are a couple of things that and were said. And, and, I, and I apologize. I know exactly what I did wrong when I was posting that. That's okay. There's, there's a few of them that here, don't link. Here. But if you, hit, if you hit copy and paste, then you can just I got open it. it I, I got it here. But um, um, as soon as it opens, dun, 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 but talk, you know, talk avian, amongst yourselves. I was going to say avian flu being one of the things it talks about is happens every year. This just happens to be a much more. Yeah. I, and I, well, and that's the thing that struck me about the article and, I, and I've got it here. Uh, uh, I've never seen anything like this since I started working here 41 years ago said, um, uh, um, who's uh, Chris anchor of the Forest Preserve yeah. District of Cook County. Chances are this is happening in other places and we're not aware of it because no one is looking. Uh, but then they, he says, or one of the quotes later in is, um, is that this happens all the time. So is, but it's still a serious matter. In the native, in the natural waterfowl population. Yeah, it happens to some degree every year, burns itself out, but yeah, it's, more serious this year um and it's rare that it spreads to humans uh folks should know that but please if you see a, a sick or dead bird that you're concerned about just notify the authorities don't don't mess with it yourself because uh, that's going to be uh, a problem so um and having watched this over the weeks you know i've been sort of keeping tabs on where these uh uh, avian flu cases are popping up, and a lot of them on, uh, as you said, factory farms, uh, places, and, and probably non-factory farms as well. Turkey farms, chicken farms. Where they've had to cull and kill, meaning kill uh, thousands of animals. Um, I think we need to keep our eye on this. I mean, it does, these things do have, they had a, a huge outbreak in 2015, apparently, um, that most of you probably don't even remember. Um unless you you work in the business so uh, and i apologize I, I i i realized what i did and why some things are not opening uh, i was it was the way i was popping things up there um like uh okay i'm gonna do the headline here because the other one of the ones yeah that, the fiddle leaf the fiddle leaf fig one does that um oh gosh i'm so sorry the unspun one does that however the schomburg trustees does not uh, go ahead, talk about that because I want I want to uh, <laughs> pop this other one up. Um, yeah, so there was there's um another story. It was in the Daily Herald. It's in a few other things. We've we talked about Carvana. Um, we talk about in Skokie. We've talked about Bellbowl Prairie of how despite objections, things are continuing to go through. Uh, this was in the headlines a week or two ago. Um, 
Schomburg trustees unanimously approved trucking firm's headquarters over neighbors' objections. Amid several final objections by nearby residents, Schomburg trustees Tuesday unanimously approved Allsip-based exterior transport's use of 55 acres in the village's southwest corner for the trucking firm's new headquarters. Um, there is some degree of wetlands and other things in the area. There's been... Um, oh, good. I'm getting blocked on Daily Herald. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> um, but, okay, uh, so there's... Army Corps considered itself to have jurisdiction over the project's wetland impacts in early 2021, has withdrawn that claim and left oversight of them to Metropolitan Water Reclamation District of Greater Chicago. Uh, I know there's a Facebook group, you know, stop the, stop the, whatever it is. Sorry, I don't have that in front of me. Um, But again, it's that same, there's environmental questions, environmental impact, residents don't want it, and then just unanimously goes through despite the objections. Yeah, and it's yes, and it, again. it's again and again and again. Municipalities, no objections. By the way, it's always always unanimous uh, that the uh, the the uh, natural areas go away and are built on, paved over. Um, mm-hmm. I just talked to. Remember, I don't know if you remember last year. We talked a little bit. I had this idea that I was calling unpaved fifty percent. Mm-hmm. which was the idea that uh, we should unpave parts of Chicago. And I said, 50% sounds about right, you know, and, and allow water to percolate back into the soil and, and, and do all kinds of other things that it would do uh, to, 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 be, to help our, um, our ecology. Um, and then I've, uh, earlier this year, I saw an email, or I, somehow I got information about something called Depave Chicago. Um, that came from Mac. It, it might. Have, show Mac. I think Mac might have sent it to me. You're right. Uh, and so I contacted the DePave Chicago people, and I talked to a, a woman who's um, part of that project. Um, she's from the University of Illinois. She's a landscape architect. She's going to be on the show in June, and we're going to talk about what it would mean to DePave parts mm-hmm. of America. Um, because, uh, I mean, Doug Tallamy points this out about how everything's getting paved over and it's, and we're losing habitat at an alarming rate. But what if we went back and showed people in urban, in suburban areas? I mean, we have malls all over the country that have been abandoned. Why not rip up that pavement and put savannas yeah. in and put in prairies and put in whatever else we need, uh, 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 rain gardens, um, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, obviously it depends wetlands. on who, wetlands, right. Who owns the land? You know, it's, there's, it's, it's tricky. Uh, but we're going to talk to her, um, in June. And I'm, I'm very excited about having that conversation about Depave Chicago. Um, and I found the uh, other article, uh, I was looking for. There are two. Sorry, I wasn't laughing at that. I just realized what the loud crash was. Apparently what? the wind blew me. The wind blew the porch door open, and Basil's about to come walking in. So, oh dear. Okay. Well, hi, Basil. That's what the loud was. <laughs> well, Legata was here in the kitchen. I was surprised. I don't know if she's gone upstairs now, but I, w- during one of the breaks, I went to warm up my coffee, and um, she was lying down in the kitchen. Usually, she just bolts. She gets out of here. Uh, so I was kind of surprised that uh, she was around. So here's an. Uh, uh, you might have seen this on Earth Day. Uh, President Biden signed an executive order 
laying the groundwork for pr- protecting some of the biggest and oldest trees in America's forests. Um, and uh, it's a directive to the Forest, Pres- uh, Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management to define and inventory mature and old growth forests nationwide within a year, uh, will require agencies to identify threats such as wildfire and climate change and to use that information to craft policies that protect them. Now, the fact that we haven't done this yet is stunning, absolutely yeah. stunning, that we don't have an inventory of our trees and, and things that we can do to protect them. Um, and obviously we didn't because Barack Obama doesn't seem to know that because he tore down a bunch of trees on the south side of Chicago, about 800 of them. About that a couple of weeks ago. What's that? Yeah. I we, talk- we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And it ago. makes me wonder why, hey, Joe... You should have talked to your buddy, Barack Obama, about that before they cut down all those trees. Uh, it's a little late for that. But it's good to see that the um, the uh, the administration is taking that kind of thing seriously. Now, will there be... Well, and a- it was, I was going to say, I, I saw a comment in there about how much more aggressive that stance is now with Tom Vilasek than it was under Obama. Well, good. It should be. Um, Which takes us to the story that uh, the Anchorage Daily News had. Well, um, and I think they got it. Did they get that from the Times? Because I thought I'd read it in the Times. So, but um, there was a fire in British Columbia called the Elephant Hill Fire. And they talk about Washington Post. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, it probably was, but, and I just called it up again and it turns out it's, this one is in the Anchorage daily news, but it's the very same story. So yeah, it it was originally in the Washington post. Um, and and it burned for three months. All right. And, um, this was in 2017. That link's not working either. Well, no, I've got it. I, I had to go track it down and I'm going to fix those links. Um, because, uh, again, I know what I did. Uh, um, so I'll, I'll fix those links. Um, but the idea is that in countries nowadays, when they, uh, they report their, their carbon sequestration and loss of carbon into the atmosphere, mm-hmm. they don't have to report forest fires often, or they don't, let me put it that way. There's, no requirement that they do, and countries like Canada say, "Well, that's and I, basically and, and basically an act of nature. So we can't account for that. We can only account for managed areas. So mm-hmm. if we lose carbon to the atmosphere there, but if but something burns, um, we don't have any say of it. So this yeah. is how they cheat. This is how they and, cheat. And and, and, and and talking about how much carbon they're responsible for as a country." Um, and it's because there are no hard and fast rules for this. Apparently, the United States, to its credit, if the forest burns and that carbon goes back into the atmosphere, they say, well, yep, we have to add that in. Other countries mm-hmm. do not. Um, Apparently, this fire was the equivalent of, what was it, 8 million cars? Exhaust from 8 million cars over a year? Yeah. Uh, I think the equivalent of this fire that burned for three months. Here's It says the... Uh, a recent Washington Post investigation found an enormous disparity between the emissions that countries report 
to the United Nations and what these independent data have documented. That gap ranges from at least 8.5 billion tons to as high as 13.3 billion tons a year of underreported emissions. Uh, The most substantial part of that gap, at least 59%, stems from how countries account for their emissions from land. Mm -hmm. And so... Permafrost melting as well. Yeah, which they go, well, well, we don't have any... But, you know, it's contributing to carbon in the atmosphere. So they're pretending that the carbon isn't going in there that does that doesn't help anybody if if just so you can say that you're one of the good guys meanwhile you're letting all this carbon in yes it might not be your fault i get that but you have to account for it anyway it's still on your land um it doesn't do us any good if if we don't have an accurate representation of the carbon going into the atmosphere. Well, actually, they do. They just don't count it against them in these uh, agreements, like the Paris Agreement or whatever. Um, so I, I just found that um, really amazing uh, when, when I read about that. So uh, let's see. Oh, well, let's, let's talk about the one that you sent me, Peggy. Uh, which again doesn't have a link. I am so sorry. I just really screwed this up when I was putting these together. Just when you think your work matters, a survey mm-hmm. comes along to set you straight. That's from Unspun. Um, and just uh, Carrie Gillum. Yes, we've had her on the show. I'm trying to get that one open right now because I know I've got the link, but I've got it right here too. Okay, there we are. Yeah. Okay. So, so Carrie Gillum um, has. She is a journalist. Um, she's written an entire book. We've had her on the show on glyphosate. Glyphosate, I'm sorry. Which um, is the active it, ingredient in Roundup. Okay. You know, and, and what's interesting what? is people might not know what glyphosate is, and that's part of her, 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 her yeah. article, well, but they know what says. Roundup is. They do know what yeah. Roundup is. So results from a new consumer survey released yesterday, this was written April 20th, show that virtually no one knows about a chemical called glyphosate, parenthetically, a chemical that I've spent the last 20-something years writing about, including authoring a whole glyphosate-focused book. It's the active ingredient in Monsanto's Roundup herbicide and hundreds of other weed-killing products sold worldwide. But surveyors for one-degree organic foods found that despite the fact that glyphosate is the most widely used weed killer on the planet, despite the fact it's a subject of litigation brought by more than 100,000 people in the U.S., and despite the fact that scientists around the world have been warning for decades that glyphosate exposure could cause cancer or other health problems, 81% of North Americans said they were not not familiar with glyphosate. On a positive note, the survey found that nearly 70% of U.S. and Canadian respondents said they were trying to limit pesticides in their food and on their lawn. So uh, she and is once made aware of what glyphosate is. 90% of North Americans were then very concerned about glyphosate in their foods. Yeah. And she wrote the book whitewash the story of a weed killer cancer and the corruption of science. And I think we had her on in 2017 yeah, to talk about yeah. that. I believe that's when, when, and um, it's uh, she is um, She's remarkable. She's working really hard to to get this word out. And I think it's, as you can tell, she's very frustrated by this, um, the idea that folks still don't, aren't paying attention to what, you know, and it's, and, and 
when we talked the other week, and I can't remember who we were talking to, we talked about 2,4-D. 2,4-D is the chemical that is even less well-known than glyphosate. You know, people don't know the, 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 the chemical names. Um, uh, there's dicamba out there too, but, but they do know the products. They do know weed and feed and dicamba and uh, 2,4-D are, are, are chemicals that are in weed and feed. And I tell you, if it says weed and feed on the bag, put it back on the shelf, walk away, just turn around and walk away. You don't need that stuff. You shouldn't put that stuff on your lawn because it's all cosmetic. It's what they called in, in Canada when they banned some of these chemicals, they called it cosmetic um, horticulture, meaning it doesn't serve any purpose except to make you happy because your lawn is perfect. Well, that's insane. Um, so, but 2,4-D is even more insidious because people put it in weed and feed um, and uh, and then folks buy it because they just know it kills weeds. Um, and they don't even think about that. You know, I say weed and feed is just another name for synthetic fertility and poison um, because it's what it is. So uh, now we have Carrie Gillum saying, you know what, people aren't paying attention to glyphosate. Well, they will if you just call it Roundup. Um, and that's part of the well, problem. And it's the bigger picture of how glyphosate is used in um, crops. You know, it's not just the bottle yeah. of Roundup, but it's how, especially the drying of a lot of um, a lot of crops right at the end. Uh, um, environmental working groups got a couple of things that just were posted recently as well. We don't have time to get into that now, but right. All right, and what, about what, how much how much glyphosate residue was found in oats and in other foods that even sure. in so-called organic. Yeah. It's, it, it's everywhere. It's, it's being found everywhere. Uh, and the last one that does, that you cannot link to right now because Michael screwed up and putting the blog post again. And, and I, and I had it done so early. That's the sad part is that I had this done so early. Um, and I think uh, it's a WordPress issue. No, nah, I don't think it is. I know. I know exactly what I did wrong. I know exactly. It was. It was. A, a, Let Legato loose at the keyboard. Operator error is what it was. But uh, the oh, the problem happened between the chair and the keyboard. Yeah, it happened between the eyes. Basically, is where it happened. Um, uh, the fiddle leaf fig is dead. It's not really. It's just an article about a plant hunter named Mike Rimlin, who's always looking for the best the latest and the greatest in indoor plants. And I don't have a problem so much with indoor plants, people getting exotic stuff because it's not like you're growing natives indoors. Um, anything you bring indoors in a pot is, is artificially uh, kept alive. So, uh, but uh, his uh, contention is that people are tired of the fiddle leaf uh, fig because uh, it's not the latest and the greatest. It's, 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 it's old school. And by the way, yeah. I, I think fiddle leaf figs are harder to keep going than most people think. There's a lot of plants that are much easier uh, in indoors and will survive, like a ZZ plant. ZZ plant was the hot prospect just a, a few years ago. Not, and then there was the oh, black yesterday. The black leaved ZZ plant, which is already passe. Um, uh, but you know, chafleuras and and begonias and wax plants and and whatever else my contention is if you raise them well and they look good 
you don't need the latest and the greatest because you're probably going to kill it anyway. So, but apparently these new ones, the one they're at is uh, the Geo that uh, it it looks like Mars, he says, with slightly curled, almost black sprouts and a thick leaf that suggested it would be hard to kill. All the qualities of a hit houseplant. And then they have a photo of it. So what I'm going to do is get that link back up there so you can mm-hmm. see what the geo looks like because that's, that's it. That's the plant of the, the month. The it plant, yes, exactly. That all the plant fluencers like. Yep. All right. We need to get to meteorologist Rick DeMaio. Stick around. He's back, and he'll be here in just a couple of minutes. From spring seed and soil treatments to summer foliar feeding to fall stubble digesters, Blazing Star provides microbial tools from tiny biologicals for natural and organic farmers. They have solutions for home gardeners, too. And Blazing Star also offers agroecological education and consulting, especially for permaculture work in Zones 4 and 5. Learn more about these great folks and great techniques at blazing-star.com. So this is a very simple PAR meter, and I'm going to measure the PAR value of this fluorescent light, which was purchased at a Home Depot specifically for growing um, and advertised as a seed starting light, minimally for PAR value for just seed starting. So just to the seedling stage, you want a minimum of 80, really. Um, 75 to 100 will do the trick. I would say 100 to 150 is far better. Um, but right now, at about a foot above the plants, uh, we're getting 49. So now we're going to, let me plug in our happy leaf light. This is our 17-inch Procyon 2.0, um, and it's a really great all-around light. Um, they also come in 33-inch lights, which I have set up here, which is where I'm going to actually put my seed flat. Let's get it about a foot over. I'm getting a value of 335. And welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Did you like that one, Peggy? You, you, Jury's still you, out. The, the, I like it. No, I'm sorry. I think it, it, it makes a really, really good point, which yeah. is... Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm talking about the actual video. Um. I'm not sure what you mean by that. Just what? the way they got their message across. That's all. I I like the message, uh, and 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 I didn't say I didn't like the message. I just said the way they got it across. Yeah, but uh, okay, I, I I disagree with you. Um, uh, otherwise, I wouldn't have shown it. Which is to say that we we spend so much time screaming about sharks, and in that it showed that uh, 470 in that given year, whenever that was shot, mm-hmm. 471 people had died because of toasters. Uh, four had died because of shark attacks. Um, and, uh, and we get all bent out of shape about sharks and then we murder them. Like we murder wolves. Uh, again, we hate predators and we just can't allow them to live, but shark attacks are so rare. Yes, they're dramatic, but they're really rare. And, you know, Steven Spielberg still owes us for putting jaws together because of that. Um, and, and sort of, um, uh, exacerbating that 
concern about sharks, which is mostly needless. So that's just my my point on that. Anyway, welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. There he is, Rick DeMaio. Um, uh, one more thing I want to say about our conversation we just had. We had um, a few people write about uh, uh, glyphosate, uh, a.k.a. Roundup. Um, and uh, one of the comments was the Nature Conservancy supports glyphosate. Well, that to say that, that's not really true. They support, I'm not sure what that means. Um, probably they use it in their conservation work, meaning I went out to Labaw Woods last Sunday and saw a bunch of trees that had been cut and poisoned with glyphosate because they were buckthorn. And the buckthorn needs to die because the other, nothing can live under a buckthorn. And so if these conservation groups did not have glyphosate in their arsenal, they could not do their work and we could not restore native lands. So we need to be careful about, uh, and Rick, you'll appreciate this, you know, it, you, you can't have just one simplistic message uh, because it is complicated. Um, that glyphosate can be useful. It's just that we use it too much and in too many situations, as Peggy was pointing out earlier. And so um, it is, we need to control the usage of it and not just go, have it uh, be a go-to chemical for anything we want to do um, because it does, it does work and it does help us. I, I had a conservation guy tell me I, I'd be out of work if glyphosate didn't exist. So there we are. It's just, uh, uh, it's, it's in some ways a necessary evil. I would just wish we used it smarter. So, well, uh, good to see you. Yeah, what, was, what were those numbers? In? Yeah, thanks, Peg. Uh, what were those numbers again on the sharks and the toasters? I was, it, kind of, it, I was trying to write them down. Uh, in, 700 it, something to no, four. Yeah, it was uh, 741. Um, People had died because of toaster explosions or electrocution. No, defective or toasters. Defective toasters in a given year. And four had died because of shark attacks. I mean, there's a series There's a series of those, and they do it with other things that people die of that are that's lightning strikes. Much more common yeah. than, uh, than uh, shark attacks. Pretty much everything in the world is much more common than a shark attack. Yeah, but I, I think out of those 740 people who died of toasters, probably 736 was when they were using it while they were taking a bath. That's what. That's when the reason. Why <laughs> I know it's, it's it's Hunter Thompson when, throwing the toilet the, the 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 toaster into the bathtub. I don't know if you've ever read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, but it's a very yeah. funny scene. It's, well, it's, it's, it's Bill Murray and Groundhog Day. Yeah. yeah. We, I think I think we all get the message. But hey, did you guys enjoy our summer? It was nice, wasn't it? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Now back to uh, what? Back to winter? Uh, well, no, back to April. And then uh, tomorrow back to early March. And then Tuesday back to mid-March. And then <laughs> Wednesday back to early March. Oh, so we, we go right back in the March. Yeah, we had – that was July weather yesterday. We, we hit 84 degrees at O'Hare, remarkable. Um, even I was a little bit, uh, I was thinking maybe 82, 81, but man, we got to 84, um, and it felt every degree of it. Um, it. Everybody was out on the beach. It was unbelievable. I was walking jacks up at Gilson, and Lee Street Beach was packed. There were people actually in the water. I don't know why they do that. Um, but um, they can. 
because they I know, but it's 42 degrees, you know, and uh, that's that's pretty but darn it's cold. Spring. But, but it's spring. It, I know, I know. And you know what? I think more than anything, uh, and real quickly, the, the record high for yesterday was 88, uh, set back in 1960. So when you miss out on the record by four or five degrees, uh, you know that you're probably in the top five warmest um, April 23rds of all time. But I think what really makes yesterday noteworthy, Peg, is that this was the warmest Saturday we've had since back on, I think, March 5th. We've had some really god-awful Saturdays. And all of a sudden, we went from, you know, literally the mid-40s with a heavy rain and a cold wind on Friday to just boom. It, it couldn't <laughs> went, from, it on a, went from fleece to short sleeves. Yeah. Anyway. I mean, it literally you literally did, did a three- or four-month flip um, in about, you know, 18 to 24 hours. Which can happen around here. That's what happens when the lake is cool and you get the wind off the lake and then the wind turns around to the south. So um, it was nice while it lasted. Uh, we have some rain on the way today. Cold front number one, which was along the squall line, kind of went through this morning and kind of pushed the instability axis to the east of us. Why is that important? Because any severe weather that will develop will generally be southwest lower Michigan, northwest indiana um into east central illinois not here um and then the second cold front will go through about three or four and that'll basically end the warmer temperatures it won't end the rain uh but it's already only in the mid 50s once you get west of the fox valley so if you want to basically take a walk in south winds of 20 to 30 miles per hour and dew points in the low 60s temperatures in the upper 60s with a little bit of rain you have the next three hours to do it, and then that won't happen again for maybe another another week. The pattern is kind of just wet and cool, which I'm okay with. Remember, going into spring last year, it was very, very dry, and going into the summer was even worse. So it's nice that the grass is green and the trees and bushes and everything else is responding to it. Yeah, and and it looked. I was looking at the uh, the line of the the radar, and it seems like some of it is going a little bit more north. Am I wrong? And so maybe some of the areas that have not been getting the rain are, are getting some of it. Well, the areas that that needed it got the most of it yesterday. Southern Wisconsin, um, it was up around two and a half inches in some areas. Um, I drove past the Des Plaines River yesterday, and it's way high. Um, yeah, even if anybody, yeah. yeah, it's, it's rising pretty quickly. Um, and even though we haven't had a lot of rain, um, of, of the heavy variety, it's been cool and the ground has not been allowed to really evaporate much. So even if you get cloudy, cool weather, that ground stays pretty wet. And, and, and it's been, it was amazing how quickly the puddles formed. So as much as golfers tried to get out and play golf yesterday, I'm sure there were a lot of holes that were not playable or they were just basically walking through very, very soggy, soggy grass. And sometimes golf courses, as you know, Mike, won't let people play in certain areas because they're going to ruin the grass. Right. Uh, when it gets well, they'll come, what you do is you compact the soil and then uh, everything is going to die. Uh, and especially if you've got golfers going over and over and over on a green, especially. And although greens are basically built with sand bases, which is right so everything can drain but still you can still compact that soil and you were talking about the uh, moisture and this is something you sent me since the beginning of the month uh it's been from april 1st to april 21st this is uh uh what are we looking at well this is temperature yeah this is temperature temperature. right 
Yeah. It may, the it may look like, yeah, it may look like moisture because it's green, but what's really remarkable is the first three weeks of the month, uh, just about everybody is below normal. And in parts of um, Iowa up into Minnesota, nearly eight to 10 degrees below normal. Here we're running around three degrees below normal, and that was kind of predicted. Uh, so what's really happened is the polar vortex did a split in the middle of, of March, and when it split, it went from basically one large vortex over in the north and uh, the North Pole to two. And when that happens, it basically pushes the jet stream uh, to further south latitudes. And unfortunately, when it's split, when you get into the springtime, you begin to bring in some mild temperatures from the lower latitudes, and that creates you know these blocking patterns. So we've been in a blocking pattern pretty much for the last three to four uh, weeks across Europe and also the Western North America. So if I would show you a jet stream map right now, you would see like the air around the North Pole kind of going from east to west and then further south kind of going west to east. And when these blocking patterns happen, um, if they happen kind of like at the end of of March into early April, uh, you literally – begin to get a, a cold sink over the Great Lakes up into Hudson Bay. Um, and that's where the colder weather begins to develop. So when you look at just the last week, this is really remarkable. Uh, you were 18 to 20 degrees below normal from the Dakotas into Minnesota. There was actually still snow on the ground, almost a foot of snow across the UP of Michigan. And now they've gotten nearly an inch to two inches of rain. So they went from um, having snow literally not on the ground but falling to now heavy rain and now flooding. So some of the worst flooding um, in all of the history of northern Michigan and northern Wisconsin has happened pretty much in like late April, early um, early May. So the mud season is in full force, full swing rather, up to the north of us um, and a lot of flooding as well. But you know what? If it floods in the areas where you just have a lot of you know, pine trees and rocky soil, it, it's not really going to impact a lot of areas. But it's, it's been a rather cool, wet start to the spring. Drought, uh, this is going to be the big story. You know, an, an amazing amount of dryness from Texas up into uh, parts of um, uh, the northern sections of Texas, I should say, um, the Oklahoma Panhandle. Uh, still some areas in West Texas, six, six months now, without any rain. Uh, the good news, again, though, is areas of Colorado and Arizona still not as bad because they had a lot of wet weather last summer and into the early spring. So they're doing okay. Um, and those areas up in Montana, uh, which were in severe drought, are now on their third blizzard um, in the last week, wow. in the last month, rather. Really remarkable stuff. Um, now, you think blizzard, you think a lot of snow. That's not always the case. You don't really need a lot of snow to get a blizzard. You just need, you know, low visibility and strong winds. But they've gotten nearly about a foot and a half to two feet of snow in those areas. And most likely that'll melt pretty quickly. And it's like getting two inches of rain. They're still, though, down about nine to ten inches. So many areas out west, um, while they're having some beneficial moisture this week, um, it's not going to be enough. Now, that area that's over us, remember, um, just a couple of weeks ago, that was actually a severe drought, uh, but that's not the case anymore. So we've had good rains up there. And even though we had you know drought last year, there were many parts of southern Wisconsin that actually did okay uh, because they got the rain at the time they needed it. So again, 
I think you drive through any areas of northern Illinois and southern Wisconsin, as much as the drought map says severe drought, um, the farmers are doing okay. The soil is, is pretty moist. Um, and as long as we don't get any late season freeze, which I don't think we'll get, we could get a late season frost, but a late season freeze right now uh, does not look like it's possible with the pattern being so progressive. Um, you said Me- the- meeting in the 20s. Meaning in the mid twenties, yeah, yeah, it, it it's and that's important to note because people say, oh, it's been so cold, um, it just hasn't been warm. So to really get super cold, you need to have like a big, enormous, like polar high come down, and I don't think that's going to happen. And studies have shown when you have a lot of moisture in the first four inches of the soil, um, the the feedback process, even during the nighttime, does not allow the ground to get cold. So. If you want to do some planting, um, you know, two inches down in the soil right now, I, I think you'll be okay. Um, if it was, if this was a dry soil, I'd be a little bit more reticent about that. But the moisture does hold on to a lot of warmth. Uh, and uh, looking at uh, what we've had uh, going over us the last day oh. and and into today, <laughs> that's yeah, pretty. This is. Go ahead. You Sorry. look at yeah. You look at this map, and and this is about as classic of. Uh, and a mid-latitude uh, cyclone, as you can get, when you can actually see the, the spin of the air up to 30,000 feet. This is pretty remarkable. So not only that, but you can see the way it, the air is spreading out over parts of Kansas. You can see the wind like over Springfield, Missouri, going from west to east, and the wind over Scotts Bluff, Nebraska, literally going straight north. So that means that the air is literally spreading out at a 90-degree uh, turn. What's really remarkable, I was looking at a couple of observations so Scotts Bluff, Nebraska is in that panhandle of Nebraska. Two stations, Scotts Bluff and Alliance, Nebraska, both hit 92 degrees on Friday. And then on Saturday morning, they were in the low 30s with a 50-mile-an-hour wind and moderate to heavy snow. I mean, that's just about as that's about as dramatic of a difference um, as you'll get not only here in North America, but literally in the Northern Hemisphere. There's not many places you can get changes um, like that. And that's one of the reasons why you don't really have a lot of people all the way from North Dakota down into uh, Western Texas. So this is, this pattern has been extremely active. Um, it's brought a lot of beneficial rain far North and you can see it there, um, on the mid on the comma cloud, that mid latitude cyclone. Um, that's pretty far North and you can get, there was, there was actually at one point yesterday, guys, where you had a tornado warning in effect, 50 miles to the east of where there was a blizzard warning. <laughs> so the fact that you were able to get two completely different types of weather, uh, this was up in North Dakota, within about 50 miles of one another, um, really is an indication of the severity of, the, of the, the, the storm, but also the nature of the climate that exists across the, that part of the northern plains. Um, I don't know how they do it. By the way, there was a great um, article in Ag Week um, magazine. I've been following that recently because of the potential harm to the cattle up across North Dakota. And the farmers were saying that the advanced warnings that they were getting almost five to seven days out, the advanced warnings for the blizzard enabled them to save a lot of the calves because this is calving season. And when you have a calf that's born and it's you know sitting out in the fields for two days and then you have a blizzard on top of that, those calves don't make it. And yeah. a similar type blizzard back in 1997 killed 110,000 head of cattle. 
Wow. And that was a $60 million hit to the beef industry. That was huge. But the numbers are going to be much, much less um, due to the fact that the farmers were able to use the weather forecast, um, go out and get the cattle. It's not like you can all bring them in, but at least you know that they're there and you're giving them uh, the type of nourishment um, and shelter that they need. So that those are, those are some of the, I think, the, the impacts – that are mitigated by a good forecast that don't make the news because no news was created from it other than good news. But if you think about it, beef is up 20% from last year. Um, this really helped out the farmers of, of North Dakota and South Dakota quite a bit. And here's a, the progression of uh, some of the, uh, of the yeah, storm these system. Are, these are- yeah, these are these are maps at eighteen thousand feet. So some of some of the viewers probably um are probably going, what the heck are we looking at here? But this is just this shows you that not only do you get strong winds in the upper levels of the of the atmosphere, but these winds were producing uh it was like seventy to eighty mile per hour winds uh, around the Albuquerque, uh, Santa Fe, Trinidad, Colorado, Pueblo, Colorado area on Friday. And Which, by the way, wildfire. are they're having terrible fires down there. Right, right. There was one wildfire just west of Albuquerque, and you can see it on the visible satellite imagery. And when you can see it that well, you know that this was bad. And not only that, but there was this huge dust plume. I was looking at a whole bunch of webcams um, all the way from Albuquerque north to Denver. And literally, they had to put out, um, the Aviation Weather Center had to put out a special, what's called a SIGMET, which is a significant meteorological event for blowing dust from the surface up to 15,000 feet. The visibility was down to like two miles. So literally the dust was blowing all the way from New Mexico into Colorado Mm. uh, and parts of Western Kansas. And, um, you know, I always say dust is, is a sign of not only drought, but also overgrazing and soil degradation. Obviously we had that much worse back during the Dust Bowl years. And if there's one thing you can't replace, um, it's soil. Once you lose the soil, it's gone. Yeah. Um, it's not like you can go back to the store and buy more or, or get, you know, water and irrigate or hope for the rain. Soil is probably the most important thing uh, for farmers. And the fact that it's been so dry in that area and you had the, the wildfire just west of Albuquerque where they actually had to evacuate some homes um, – and this is only mid-April. This isn't like May, June, July, or August. So this is, I always like to call this, this is the fireworks going off on Memorial Day in advance of July 4th. So mm-hmm. that that one was at 18,000. Now we're looking at 10,000 feet. So what's what what are we seeing here? That, is this a progression or is this just a, uh, I mean, so. No, it's just here, different levels of the atmosphere. Here's Back the, layers of the atmosphere. Yeah, I know. Right. But so what does the green stand for uh, in uh, in these charts? So that's 18,000. Here's 10,000. So right. was the it, green is the moisture. The green is well, the moisture. So if you, but, you look at the bottom, you see 70, 80, 90%. So this shows that the moisture wrapped all the way around. Um, and as it And as it blows from south to north, it goes from, say, 1,000, 1,500 feet over North Dakota up into the higher levels, up around Rapid City, Spearfish, uh, the eastern plains of Wyoming that are about, you know, say, 5,000 feet. So that upslope flow in the wind literally captures the snow, which is one of the reasons why that area um, is so prone to blizzards. So 
Um, I was just looking at a webcam out of uh, Leeds, South Dakota. They got about two feet of snow on the ground and three to four foot drifts. So again, you think about those areas where all those cattle, and especially this time of year when the calves are not more than a week or two old, um, many of them die. Well, and you have really, uh, you sent this photo. This is uh, Wyoming. That's I've... Douglas, Wyoming. Yeah, that that is literally just to the west of Rapid City by about fifty miles. So this was on Friday, and then the next map shows you Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> so think wow. about that. You're 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 a week you're a week old. What are you going to do? So a lot of times um, the uh, the cattle will get lost, uh, and the farmers can't go out in the fields. Um, it's not like they can get on a truck or, or uh, you know, an ATV. They literally have to go out there with snowmobiles and pull these enormous bales of hay, which weigh a lot. And if you think about the number of cattle that they have, the one thing that the cattle need to survive more than anything is water. So it's not like you can bring water out and expect it to, you know, stay the night. It's going to freeze. Yeah. So it is, it, it, it's about as hard as anything you can ever imagine this time of the year when there's a late season blizzard, because uh, dairy cattle, you know, they're, they're cooped up, but the, the livestock, they're everywhere out in the field. And mm-hmm. some of these farmers have, you know, 5,000 acres. Where do you begin at that point? So these are those stories again, Mike and Peg, that the fact that they were able to say that the weather forecast five days in advance helped them out. Um, that really, it, 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 it makes you feel good inside. It really does. Especially when you see a farmer literally with the calf around their, around their shoulders walking. And you know that that's not the first one. It's probably the fifth or the sixth or the seventh that they've carried in. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty cool stuff to see there. Well, other cool stuff that you sent us is uh, the Great Lakes, what's going on in uh, the Great Lakes here, the water temperatures. Um, and uh, yeah, the ice still on Lake Superior. Yeah. Now, I I didn't go back and look to see whether or not this is um, how far it is from normal. Um, I meant to do that, but I kind of got off into other other territory there. But you can see right along the southwest shore of the southwest side of Lake Michigan, it's six degrees Fahrenheit, six degrees centigrade. So that's forty three degrees Fahrenheit. But if you go up the lake, Door County, uh, Green Bay, as you can see, is like zero to two. So it's probably about 32 to 33 degrees Fahrenheit. And as Peg alluded to, uh, Lake Superior is still in the low 30s and still has ice on it. So that little, uh, that little patch of white there um, is not um, – actually, that little patch of white is Isle Royal. Uh, that's that small island there. But still, right. there's, there's some ice. Yeah, there's still some ice um, mainly along the shoreline around the Apostle Islands um, on the mm-hmm. other side up here. But – uh, this is getting kind of late, and again, that's because it's been so cool. So this April has almost acted like March a little bit. Yeah, and then you can see it still says two point five percent, but that's that's an amazingly cool start to the period. The good thing is that the lakes are down, and one of my questions I just rewrote my um, second exam for my Loyola students. We were talking about Great Lakes and climate change, and. Even though I talked about it, I always like to give them links in the exam so that they can, they go, yeah, but isn't it? Even though I said it, I put the link in there and three different links still do not really connect any long-term trends of the lake levels because we've seen in 2012 with the very, very dry pattern, the lake levels went down. And then within five or six years, we had two very, very wet springs in a row. 
the lake levels went up. So as long as you keep getting things like that and there's no real trend in the lake levels, in the lake levels, you really can't say climate change has an impact. The one thing climate change has impacted with the Great Lakes is the warmth of the Great Lakes. They seem to be getting warmer and there's less ice. But the odd thing about it is the less ice allows more lake effect snow to form. Mm -hmm. So that'll make people go, okay, so what are the changes with um, – with the Great Lakes and climate change. And as you were talking about the top of the segment, Mike, it's complicated. It's not that easy. So you have to go by it step by step. However, you plan for the worst thing, which is the high lake levels. And we lost a bunch of beaches. So you say, oh, that's all right. Every five years, we just want to have people on the beaches. No, you have to rebuild the beaches and hope for the best. Mm -hmm. So it's not easy. It's complicated. But as long as we learn that it's not that easy. It makes you think about it more. And I think that's the most important thing. I'm going to actually be meeting up with a friend of mine who is um, forecasting for DHL. Uh, it's a company that does a lot of you know, shipping. And his yeah. job over the last, the last two years has really become more global. And he literally looks out three to four weeks. That's what he does, mm-hmm. three to four weeks, three to four weeks. And they look at trends and they look at how – the atmosphere is changing. They look at shipping. Uh, they look at, you know, trucking. Not so much air freight. That's more short term. Uh, but it's amazing how um, in the supply chain um, difficulties with that we've had, his business and his expertise has been in demand more than ever. It's, it's, really, it's really unbelievable. Um, and the stuff that he talks about is completely different than the stuff I talk about. Like, um, oh, boy, those planes are coming in on the southwest side of O'Hare as opposed to the northeast side because of the wind and where the thunderstorms are. All right, Rick, uh, have a great Sunday. We'll talk to you soon. Yep. Bye, Mike. Bye, Peg. Let's uh, get out of here as soon as I find this. There we go. And uh, thank uh, the folks who are on the show. The marvelous Melinda Myers. Yes, product placement. Uh, Thanks to uh, good to see meteorologist Rick DeMaio. Um, we have one of our, our viewers uh, express his concern about uh, uh, animal uh, factory farms and cattle raising for meat, and I get it. I totally get it. Um, it's uh, various ways of looking at the world, and we talk about it a lot on this show. Thanks to Kathleen, who's been wandering around here. Thanks to Basil the dog, Legata the cat. Uh, thanks to all of our viewers. I'm glad you were with us today on this Sunday. Uh, until next time, go green or... Go home. Uh, Stadler? Uh, what? Is that it? Yes, it's over. How'd you like it? I don't know. I slept through the whole thing. Well, you didn't miss much. <laughs>